By the way, how has like um, COVID affected your work now? Like, is you know, with human participants, we it's can't test huh? them, yeah. but with animals, is it the same or? No, not not really. No, it depends on where the animals are. So, for example, now I work a lot with farm animals. So you need to go into the stables and there potentially there are many people around. So it gets a bit more complicated again because you need to yeah, kind of make sure that you're not that closely together or that you're wearing your masks and whatever, which can then affect the animals again and their behavior because you kind of look right. weird, yeah. right? Um, so yeah, it's, it hasn't affected me that much or probably not as much as it has affected you, but still, um, yeah, it's not that flexible and easy anymore to just plan something. But so far it's, it's okay. So are there animals that only know the experimenters with masks? You know, like how, how children now kind of grow up seeing other people with masks all the time, like everyone outside of their family. Is there like some animals that basically now would be, it would be weird for them if you were to talk to them without a mask or? That's a good question. I don't know. Because it would need to be like, maybe like, well, no, not even. I was thinking of puppies that were just born now yeah, and something like went that. into a family. But then again, at home, you don't wear your mask, right? So which animals are there, which only are in the public and seeing people with masks, maybe in zoos? Yeah, well, I was thinking like the, if you said like you work in a stable and you always mm -hmm. have to wear masks, like a calf or something, that was born like yeah, a year probably, ago. Yeah, could be, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Really interesting, but there will definitely be some interesting research for the future to see like how, <laughs> if they can still yeah. see us or read our emotions while we wear masks. Because for sure dogs react differently if you wear a mask or not. I mean, I always assume that dogs can't see that well, but it's more smell and hearing. Uh, I mean, I guess it sounds different when you talk, but... Yeah, but uh, so in a close range, they can see pretty well. Yeah, It's yeah. okay. Okay, so yeah, yeah. Definitely. But also, for example, if you go in and a dog wants to greet you and wants to lick like your mouth area, they cannot access right? Yeah. <laughs> so they try to go for the ears or something. So it definitely is, is a bit weird. I really like that will avoid the cloth area, yeah. basically, yeah. and lick you off. Yeah. Forehead and your ears. And, exactly. Yeah. Whatever they can reach. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. But actually, maybe, yeah, I'll, I'll ask already about what you're doing right now. Then, whilst mm -hmm. we're kind of on the topic, roughly, mm -hmm. um, I mean, so you're the, the, the research that we're mainly going to be talking about, um, today is, you know, your stuff with dogs and parrots. Mm -hmm. I guess you have dogs on a farm, but not really farm animals in that sense, right? So how, I mean, are you still doing like cooperation and inequality and that kind of stuff or inequity in farm animals or what are you kind of doing? Yeah, right partly. So I'm, st I'm very interested in this whole topic of social cognition. So how animals are interacting with each other, which yeah, aspects of the social environment do they understand? So really basic things like can they recognize each other? Can they keep track of one another if they don't see each other for some time? So things like this are really interesting. I think especially now with farm animals, I always wanted to, to work with farm animals and to kind of improve their lives. So I have this idealistic way of thinking that, uh, yeah, we should treat them in a better way. And so um, with them, there's actually really little research into cognition in general because there's so much focus on how to increase their production and to make them healthier or reproduce faster, whatever. But so little about how they yeah, interact with their environment because they're always in these barren environments. They have no, no straw available or no space to walk anywhere. 
And so now having this background working with dogs on cooperation and also with parrots on cooperation, uh, yeah, I mean, you have this background with this uh, with this research in general, and I want to apply this also to farm animals to kind of better understand, like, yeah, what do they know about each other and how can we use this information to improve their housing conditions? So yes, I'm, yeah, I'm still conducting the research with farm animals, but I need to start at another level, so at a very more basic level first, and then we can proceed, hopefully. So first basal social cognition and then, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Um, so what farm animals are you studying? Because there's, I mean, quite a lot, right, that yeah. could fall into this. It's true. Yeah, it kind of depends on the question. So with this, um, for, for now, at the moment, I'm running a study with pigs because they're interesting in this regard as they're also very gregarious. They live together with this family groups. They have a really, um, yeah strong social structure in a way that they have a dominance hierarchy and um, yeah it's usually yeah a closed group they do not let others in so they have kind of a good first step to understand how they are cooperating with each other or how they help each other in certain ways and how can pigs like what can pigs do to help another pig like what what is some kind of normal behavior that's, you know, not something that maybe you would study is that you could control experimentally, but just kind of in the natural environment, like how do pigs help each other? So there are many different situations. For example, if you think that a piglet is somehow in distress because it, it fell into a river or whatever, or is kind of stuck somewhere, <laughs> that another pig comes and tries to help it get out of the situation. Or that one pig found some really interesting food somewhere and is calling the others to also come and share this food. Yeah, things like... How specific are like the calls of a pig? Do they just say like, come here? Do they, or, like, do they make a just a loud noise and then get attention then other pigs come? Or do they like specifically call pigs? Or, or do they even specifically call them because saying like, hey, there's good food, good food here? How specific can they be? Yeah, that's a good question. I think there's actually not that much done in this regard. So for sure, they have different calls, like for attention or signaling that they're in distress. So that this high, this uh, high pitched scream that yeah, oh, the, the the is in pain yeah. or whatever. So they have different ones, but I think there's not so much research into whether they have individual calls so that they can recognize each other. But I'm I'm not that's sure. That's crazy. That we wouldn't, I just assumed like people had already done the research to figure out, can pigs address each other specifically or can they address specific situations or whatever? I just, I just assumed someone had already done that. Not that I'm aware of, but this is not really my, my research area into this okay. whole, yeah, yeah. vocalization no, but, yeah. aspect. I mean, just like one thing I always think about when I think of this kind of research in animals and whether they can cooperate and that kind of stuff is that they, well, at least like from, you know, I guess from a human perspective, it seems like they, they can do a lot less specific things often in terms of like, you know, I mean, we'll talk more about your parrot study later, but you know, they, they, they can't do that much with their beaks, right? They can hand a token over or something, but they can't mm -hmm. like manipulate things precisely or that kind of thing because mm -hmm. they just lack the manual dexterity just, or but it's less than a, well, anyway, maybe not, but, um, or like with calling, I guess parrots can do quite a lot, but like other animals, it seems are more limited in terms of the, range of vocalizations they can even make mm -hmm. so i always wonder like to what extent well it just seems like 
any social interaction is based on a lot more uncertainty than there might be in humans where you can be much more precise in your meaning um, or in your actions. Yeah, I think we, we humans often think of, or we humans often have problems to think of how it would be in, yeah, if we would be a bird or something because yeah. we try to, yeah, kind of impose our way of living or our way of interacting onto other animals as well. So for sure, also with all of these cognitive studies, it's kind of how would we solve this paradigm because we build it in a way. So we think of, okay, this animal needs to pull now or needs to grab this, but for the animal, it might be completely different in how they perceive it. And that's kind of the, the difficulties in this kind of field because we are just humans. We cannot know how it feels like to be a dog or whatever. So that's the, the big issue and the problem to kind of think outside of the box. So how do, how do you try to do that? Is it just studying the animals as much as you can and using tasks like that or oh, creating tasks that require behavior that they would do anyway? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Or is, yeah, is that all you can do? Or? Yeah, so for sure you should always start by observing an animal species for some time to know how they are interacting, how, yeah, how they're managing their time over the day so when maybe you want to test always during um, lunchtime and then they're always sleeping so you kind of need to take this into account but also if you you design paradigms or apparatuses you kind of need to take their natural behavior into account like for example pigs they always like to root to do things with their nose to dig into the the soil or whatever so obviously you shouldn't use a task where they need to do something with their foot because they would normally never do it. Yeah, They need to take this into account. But still then, it might be that they're perceiving the task completely different than you intended them to do. Yeah. Is the... There's actually one question I had when I saw the uh, video of the parrot study. Mm -hmm. You know, because there they, they... Well, they I guess technically they don't have to, but in that case, they transferred the tokens by um you know one picking it up with a beak and um like this beak to beak transmission of the token if that's the way you want to put it mm -hmm. and it didn't seem super smooth just like me mechanically the way they did it like is that something that is do they usually transfer things via their beaks to each other or mm -hmm. yeah so they especially parrots use their beak in a really um, sophisticated way so they can crack open these really tough nuts they can hold it with their, their foot as well to kind of yeah move it around and put it in the right, correct position. So obviously they they wouldn't pick up these metal things in the nature or maybe they would a bit to play, but maybe not to give it directly to each other. But for sure they uh, yeah give food to one another. So they show this aloe feeding that they put their beak to the other beak and then they regurgitate the food. And so they're... They they're using their beak in the in the food context, but also in the play context. Okay, a uh, very general question: Do all bird species feed their youngs via this regurgitation, mm -hmm. or because I just realized, like I just assumed they did, because that's what you see, like about you know European birds or something. Mm -hmm. uh, is that always the case, or? I, as far as I know, yes. So in the first days, definitely, and then they bring the more the intact piece of insect or whatever and the, the youngsters can feed on their own but in the beginning yes okay, okay. yes i'm still uh, kind of slightly surprised um that 
it seems we know so little about cattle or farm animals and that kind of stuff, like how they behave. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I guess it's like with most research, like you, you think, you know, even like the stuff I'm doing, I often think like this is a obvious question that someone must have done before. Mm-hmm. And you search for like three days on the internet and you just can't find anything about it. Um, yeah, or you find really, there. really old studies that <laughs> yeah, 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 maybe yeah. in the 70s, but not really well controlled for. And then yes, you wonder yes. like, why did nobody ever repeat this or try to replicate it? Yeah, that's a, that's actually exactly what I've been finding. Yeah, a lot of like old studies that kind of did something, but not very well. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's always I always find it like there's almost like a, kind of collector's joy when you find like a paper from the 50s with 12 citations or something that kind mm-hmm. of does what you want to do mm-hmm. and yeah. you, I don't know, you feel like a bit special for having found this paper but then you mm-hmm. often also realize why no one cited it yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, a, it's a bit of a mixed bag yeah but coming back to the farm animals i think it's not that no research has been done on farm animal behavior. So there's definitely quite a lot, but often it's more going into the welfare direction so that you kind of look at how, for example, cattle are kept. Maybe one problem, or especially with dairy um, cows, it's that you take out the, the young after several hours after they're born. You take out the calves because you want to get the milk from the mothers. So obviously the calves right. cannot drink from the cows anymore. Yeah, yeah. So this research is then more more focused on how we can yeah make this separation less stressful for example or how to yeah get the the calves more healthy in a shorter amount of time but obviously for for increasing this welfare in this regard you need to understand maybe how they form their bond the mother offspring bond how quickly is it formed is it reliant on uh, on yeah vocalization between the calf and the cow or which other aspects are involved there so it's just kind of yeah taking a different direction a bit Okay. Um, so you said, you know, you're interested in, you know, these like uh, improving their lives in these kind of farm situations. What kind of living situation do you test them in? Because I imagine that a lot of the the way they're held in, from, you know, meat or dairy production, I wonder whether you'd be allowed to keep them like that. Like, you know, in a way, like you're testing them in one environment, but the actual environment that many of them live in is very different anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just curious, like what I'm assuming, like you probably have fairly strict. Well, first, do you do you test animals that like that live actually on a farm or like naturally, and you'd kind of test them that already exist in that environment, or do you have like a lab where you have a farm that you built up to test? Um, so we actually use both versions here. So we have one research farm in which there is just like a small amount of animals and so not a really big production farm. But for example, there in the pig stable of the university, you have like 60 pigs and they're kept under the standard farm conditions that you, you can find there. Now, if you wanted to test, for example, pigs now on a farm with this uh, yeah, really nice ecological conditions, so the most, yeah, taken care of with the best welfare possible you need to collaborate with a farmer around and do your research there so it always depends on the conditions or what you want to test and um, yeah with this research farm you can adapt the, the housing to a certain degree so you can tell them for example do not mix the pigs now but may wait maybe two weeks or you give them some straw now and we we observe what they're doing but it's, yeah, well, it's limited in terms of space, for example, or in terms of housing condition. They do not have outdoor access, so it's kind of always dependent on your research question. 
but at least with with farm animals you always I mean you have them all around you you just need to have people whom you can you know with whom you can collaborate or who allow you to test their animals it's a bit different if you want to test like parrots for example which are just not all around you and which you cannot access that easily actually in Heidelberg where I'm right now we have these like small green ones that fly around mm. everywhere and make huge amounts of noise. Um, I'm glad I don't live next to like a flock. In the city? Yeah. Do you, do you know which ones I mean? There's these, they, these they actually live cheese, all right? over. Oh, I don't, wait, let me just actually, I we have the internet. Oh, just so. Yeah. No, I mean, it's the kind that exists. I also saw them in London when I lived there. Um, they're mm -hmm. like kind of all over Europe. Uh, where the German is Halsbandsittig, but the English Yeah, isn't is it like Alexander? Rose-ringed parakeet. Yeah, the rose-ringed okay. parakeet. Small green ones with a red beak. Um, mm -hmm. They're in Heidelberg. I didn't know. Yeah, they're, they are... I haven't seen them everywhere, but there's... Um, I mean, Heidelberg isn't huge. Um, and basically you walk like... 20 minutes in any direction Heidelberg you're basically in the countryside and I think like kind of on these slightly more outskirts of the city you see mm -hmm. um yeah I've seen quite a lot um yeah. but yeah I mean you are correct of course in general I didn't want to I didn't want to disagree yeah. with your statement that there aren't parrots yeah. <laughs> that yeah. there are parrots yeah yeah it's this weird I was really it's so funny because apparently these they exist in like Senegal and like mm -hmm. Yeah, but yeah. they're super flexible and, and then, can live everywhere. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the first time I saw one in London, I was really concerned. I thought, like, especially it was like in November or October or December or something, and it was around mm -hmm. zero degrees. And I thought, oh no, like someone's parrot escaped. Yeah. Um, and is, you know, going to freeze to death now. But then I found out, like, no, they, they just they live in Europe now. <laughs> That's great. I, I once talked to, to um, a journalist from the Netherlands, and she was writing a, a story about, I think, also these same parakeets. And I thought, like, oh, well, I haven't seen them anywhere in Germany yet, but it's interesting. Oh, okay. Uh, wait, let's see if I can find anything about where they are in... Maybe uh, they're even in Gießen. <laughs> maybe. Maybe you have an entire <laughs> flock, or whatever it's called. But I haven't seen them yet. Uh, so the interesting thing, actually, when you go to the German Wikipedia article for Halsbandsittich, mm -hmm. one of the photos is of one in Heidelberg. Okay. Um, so it maybe this is they are maybe they are wait let's see so in 1969 there were some in Cologne so some along the Rhine so Düsseldorf Wiesbaden Worms <laughs> didn't know that was big enough to mention uh, Mannheim Heidelberg some in Frankfurt yeah it seems to be like roughly between Düsseldorf and Heidelberg that kind of okay. uh, Interesting. area so yeah but no it's it's um It's funny, like when we talk about like social interactions and animals, those have to be the loudest birds I've ever heard. Like they, there'll just be like 50 of them and they're just whatever, talking to each other the mm -hmm. entire time. <laughs> yeah, but at least they make nice calls. So when I worked with the parrots yeah. there in Spain, we had some macaws. And when they scream, it's like, it's not pleasant or anything. It's yeah. just loud and really annoying. Yeah, yeah. Well, to be fair, I think here it's just so many of them that it mm -hmm. does become a, like there was, there was this one place in particular I walk, used to walk by, and there was all this big tree where there were at least fifty or a hundred of them or something, 
and there were also houses right opposite the tree. And I was so glad I didn't live there because it's just this constant <laughs> noise from yeah. these birds all day. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But... Yeah, and all the, the the nice little German native birds that just make <laughs> <Yeah>. my god. <laughs> yeah, just shut up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know. There's where I live right now. There's this bird in our garden or something that. It's really interesting how that one, like the phrases it sings. Unfortunately, I have no idea what it is, but the phrases it sings sound very much like music. Like they're mm-hmm. very, they have the kind of duration and the kind of melodic flow of stuff mm-hmm. that humans also compose. Yeah. I wish I knew what, what it was. Um, it's, it, and it also often sounds almost like it has like the same rhythm as people talking almost. It's, mm-hmm. yeah, I wish I knew what it was. No idea. But there's actually a lot of research going into this, into how um, bird songs are similar to human speech really yeah and i think for example budgies so these pet, small pet pet parrots that you keep at home the budgies how do you spell like that i just budgie, want to look up which budgie. they are in german it's velensity oh velensity okay yeah, i know what that one is um they 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 do have some components of, of how they arrange their their songs which might be similar to human speech that's quite interesting. Yeah, is that maybe why also humans keep them? Because it's vaguely maybe yeah. Well, it's it's like when I hear this one bird, it's much more interesting to listen to than like a bird that has like a a random like, like to me mm-hmm. some sort of random chirp or something. It's yeah, I mean, it's, it's it always sense, right? It's much more interesting to listen to, yeah. Because we're so prone to our own or to listening to other human speech and how the melody should go in a way that we prefer to be around animals that yeah, produce similar vocalizations. But I think especially with parrots, it's also one way why humans like to keep them is that they imitate human speech. I mean, you have all those parrots that can actually say words, human yeah. words. Can they actually do that really well? I, I've always heard yeah. that, but I've never actually, like, it's, you know, like one of those facts you learn when you're about three years old. Um, and a lot of those facts later on you realize are not true, <laughs> but th- that is true. Oh. It's true. Yeah. Definitely. Okay, yeah. <laughs> They're really, really good at it. But unfortunately, especially those that you keep alone at home. So without other birds around. So for example, like African greys, you often keep them alone or you used to keep them alone at home. And so if they have no social partner to interact with or to talk to, they start imitating the human voice. Oh, it's okay. It's in particular if they, if that's all they have as other voice. Yeah. They're they're more prone to it. I mean, also birds living together in pairs or whatever, they also start doing that or some are more prone and starting to imitating this. But I think especially birds that are kept alone are, it's like one way to communicate with a human. So they have, yeah. So it's actually pretty sad. Are you you still allowed to keep birds on their own? I I heard once that like, what is it, guinea pigs or something in some Mm -hmm. countries, you're not allowed to have only one. Is that the case with like these larger parrots? Or it's a good question. I don't know. It, it should be like that, but then again, with the birds, you have the problem they they get so old and they're not especially. So some are really difficult to introduce to new birds. So, for example, if you keep like an African grey, which is sixty years old or so, maybe the, his or her mate already died, and so it's difficult to introduce them to a new bird so i think it's it's a bit more tricky than for example with guinea pigs that you say like they always have to be in pairs but do you but they just get used to each other in their youth or whatever or yeah or when they they they're getting adults and they start to to mate or to form pairs 
or many parrots have these lifelong monogamous pairs. So they're really, yeah, a couple for all of their life. And if one dies, they they don't want to remarry. Yeah, that's some it. Don't. Yeah. yeah, that's yeah. very romantic. Mm-hmm. And then they start imitating people. Mm-hmm. There was actually a really funny uh, news story some month ago from a zoo in England somewhere. They had like three or four African greys and they started to um, imitate so many swearing words. <laughs> <laughs> they needed to take them out of the zoo because it was not... Yeah, well, some people complained <laughs> about the swearing African greys. But that's probably intentional by... I, I can very much imagine people going by saying, hey, let's let's teach the parrots some swear words. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then I guess especially if you're in England, there are a few ones you would use more than others. Mm-hmm. So that's, those are probably the ones that they just... Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's funny. Humans always find a way to, to, to make the lives of animals difficult, mm-hmm. even by teaching the swear words. Yeah. That then get the birds taken out of... What do they do with them? Just like take them, put them somewhere where they, where children know. can't listen to them, or yeah, maybe or just split up this group that this weird dynamic kind of got out. But then again, like all the individuals, they know how to say those words. So <laughs> exactly, but maybe you don't have this one individual in there that triggered this. Uh, yeah, <laughs> the swear words. word. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, maybe there was just one parrot who was really annoying and the others just told him to whatever, fuck off or whatever. Yeah. They, they yeah. Told him, whatever. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I have, uh, actually, you know, I want to talk about the papers now, but uh, before I have like one last question about farm animals, which is just purely random and from my own life. So I grew up more or less in the countryside and, you know, we'd have fields with cows and that kind of stuff. So, you know, if you'd walk by a field fairly close, I mean, they were like, you know, fenced off, of course, so the cows don't, you know, run away. But there would, you know, often if you'd stand there for a minute or something, not even a minute, like if you just stand there for, like you'd have a pretty big field and the cows would be 100 meters away or something. If you stand there for a minute or so, the cows will come. And, um, you know, we also had a dog, so we'd walk the dog around there. The dog would like, you know, stay at a place, sniff, and then all the cows would come and the dogs and the cows would look at each other and be vaguely mm-hmm. excited, but not exactly know what to do. Um, but what are the cows exactly why, why, what are they doing? Why are they coming to you if you just kind of stand there for a minute? Like, are they expecting? I always wondered, like, do they expect me to to do something, or they're just curious? Yeah. Or so I think one thing is for sure that they're curious about what's happening there. The other thing might be that they have this kind of reinforcement history with humans. So whenever they they see a human, something interesting is happening, or hopefully good, like they're being milked, or they're getting food, or something good happens grew up pretty idyllically i think they probably something good happened here yeah so maybe they were just coming close to uh, with the hope that something good will happen (laughs) but yeah with the dog it's really interesting because actually they're the kind of you could see them as a predator for the the cows so that's an optimistic dog though a cow (laughs) like that's (laughs) Yeah, well, but still, I mean, they can chase them, and they—I mean, cows are a flight animals, so for sure they should keep yeah. out or be wary of predators. But I often see that as well—that cows are really interested in dogs. So I've often seen it that they're even more interested in the dogs than they are in the humans. So when I walk past a, a field, that the cows are just interested in my dogs, but not—they're not even looking at me. So it's weird that they—they have this fascination with dogs. I don't know why. Yeah, I mean, we always had this thing where in the 
So in this case, there would be like, I don't know, maybe 10 cows or so in a field. And maybe it's more than a, but let's say it's 10, 15, something. And then they'd usually all come and they kind of just stand near the fence and then the dog would stand on the other side of the fence and they could see each other and, you know, like they'd just look at each other for a minute or so. And then at some point they'd realize, okay, nothing's really happening here. So <laughs> they slightly start diffusing again. But yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, they were always, I mean, in this case, the dog was also closest to the fence. So maybe the dog was just closer than me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, they always seemed very interested in like what, what was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, even, yeah, even though nothing was going on, so I don't know. Yeah, but then again, if you think of the habitat that those cows are living in, they are they're on this this meadow. I mean, they have lots of grass to eat from, but apart from that, there's not much happening, right? So whenever somebody comes by or drives by, it's interesting. Yeah, this is literally just a pretty big field. The cows are standing at they're grazing. But mm-hmm. do cows do other stuff? Like, I don't know, I guess we don't have wild cows anymore in, in Germany, whatever, but yeah. unless yeah. they're like, you know, they, they escape, then they're very wild. But, you know, do cows really do that much more than just graze yes. all day? Sure. <laughs> what, what do they do? Sure. I mean, they they rest and ruminate, which is also, again, like <laughs> yeah, that's a great food activity. related, but uh, they also exchange social interactions so that they rest together and body contact, that they groom each other, so they lick their, their each other's faces or the side. So they also have friends, they prefer some cows more than others. They walk towards other food areas, so yeah, they walk towards sleeping places or get into shelter when it's raining. But they could do most of that on a field, right? I guess they don't yeah. have like new environments that they can explore yeah, in but, a way. But, but everything but still, else, it's always the same area, right? And most most fields yeah. or, or meadows are kind of even, so there's not even like a hill to climb or to walk yeah, down. Yeah, here they're even. Yeah, yeah. So it's a bit, yeah, a bit boring, yeah. you could say. But actually, are there still cows that kind of roam? the wild freely in europe i don't know it seems to me they're all kind of yeah so the 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 wild ancestor of our cows today the um our rocks i think it's in english our oxen this one went extinct but uh, i think they tried to yeah combine really primitive breeds with each other again so that they build up like a, a fake species like that and um i think they're still somewhere um kept in in wildlife parks and um in bigger areas i think in poland somewhere they also have a bigger um group of these animals and they're they yeah they live there freely on their own and are not yeah in close human contact okay and then they but i'm assuming like you know most wild animals as far as i understand you know they usually have like their area where they live right they're not completely mm-hmm. nomadic yeah is it much do you know if it's much bigger than like how big is a normal i don't know what the word would be um the, the home normal, range yeah home range of an a wild cow <laughs> do you know what it is a good question i don't know okay no but i would expect it to be big because if you think like they're really big animals they need to consume lots of grass in order to keep their metabolism running so they need to yeah to inhabit a really big area in order to provide enough food for them yeah 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 cow <laughs> Oh, a good old cow. I don't. I really like cows, but this is just, you know, they're they're such like sweet creatures, but mm-hmm. they just stand around all day. Yeah. Um, 
But there's so much more to them if you look a little bit longer and see what they do and play yeah, I've, as well. I've never really seen cows lick another cow. I mean, like maybe I just didn't stand and, you know, um, or maybe they don't do that when humans are around, like, you know, like strangers or something, I mm -hmm. could imagine maybe. I don't um, know, but they do that quite often, so it's not, not super rare. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, like, as you know, I grew up kind of, it's like, I, you know, I grew up seeing these animals, but never like up close in that sense, in the sense that, you know, if I'd walk the dog, I'd go past one or two fields that might have cows, but, you know, mm -hmm. I wouldn't go into the field or anything. Yeah, sometimes they run around a bit. I've seen that. Mm -hmm. um, cows are probably the least elegant running species I know of. <laughs> you know, they have this very <laughs> angular kind of... Yeah. <laughs> but then again, like, why do they run like that? Because we, we selectively bred them to be in this shape so that they can, yeah, like, produce lots of muscle mass and have this really big... Um, missing the English word. What's the Memory term? gland, like the oiter. Udder. Adder, yes. Yeah. Sorry. So they, they have this really big adder like shaking there under their, their belly. So they cannot run that super elegantly. They're not bred to run. Okay, fair and enough. And if you think of the really intensive farming conditions there, they cannot run at all. They can walk, but that's it. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Don't have sufficient space. So it's a bit mean to say they cannot run properly because I'm sorry. we made them like that, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm very sorry for insulting cows' gate. Okay. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah, I said I still like them. They're very cute. Yeah, I think actually me growing up like that is, I have such a like wrong idea of what farming conditions are like because I grew up with like sheep and cows on you know these often pretty large fields also, mm -hmm. um, just like doing their thing. But so whenever I think of like beef. Mm -hmm. I think of that rather than how, you know, where it actually comes yeah. from. Yeah, I think that's often a common misconception. And I think also all those uh, producers with their pictures on the trucks or whatever of these really happy cows outside, yeah, yeah. they're really trying to feed this misconception and the myth of happy animals outside, which is unfortunately yeah. often not the case. Yeah, the only happy cows are the purple milka cows. Yes, of I course. Think that's, that's, <laughs> that's the only one that's true. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> okay. Uh, shall we talk about your research now? Yes. <laughs> um, yes, as I mentioned, uh, I'd like to start with your papers on inequity aversion in dogs, mm -hmm. uh, which you did a few years ago, what, five years ago? Or well, that one, that's when it was published. Can you maybe briefly summarize the plus one paper, the inequity aversion negatively affects tolerance in contact-seeking behaviors towards partner and experimenter? Mm-hmm. Okay, so this was the first study that I did during my PhD at uh, the University of Veterinary Medicine in Vienna. Sorry, can I just yeah, sorry, uh, just um, for for listeners who don't know, I put the references in the description, so you can just look there for any of the papers we're mentioning. Yeah, sorry. Okay, so this was the first paper of my PhD in Vienna, and um, the topic of the PhD was, broadly speaking, to understand why dogs show inequity aversion, so why do they react if they get something different than their partner? So both do the same work, but one gets a better payoff than the other one. And so we wanted to find out why is this the case? Are they really actually understanding that the partner gets something better or is it like really rather really simple frustration mechanism that they yeah get frustrated because they do not get anything 
And so um, I tried to replicate with a study, a previous study from my supervisor back then, who was the first to find out that dogs react to unequal treatment. And so we used the same um, paradigm that she used. So we had two dogs sitting next to each other. They were alternately asked to give their paw. And either they got the same reward for giving the paw or they got a different reward. So that one partner got a piece of sausage, the other one got nothing for giving the paw. And um, yeah, so in order to find out if they're just yeah, frustrated because the partner gets something better, we incorporated some control conditions. So for example, they were tested also alone without a partner present and they likewise did not get a reward. So they could not compare it to, to their partner's reward. And so following all of these test conditions, which we ran separately on each day, we um, assessed their tolerance towards their other dog partner. So we released both dogs at the same time and they got to eat from a big food bowl filled with sausages. And following this, we sat down on the room, uh, on the floor inside of the test room, and we just looked how the dogs were reacting towards me, so the, the mean experimenter, but also towards, the, exp uh, towards the, the other dog and towards their owner. And what we found in the end was that, yeah, dogs reacted to um, inequity aversion, so due to being paid unequally. So if one dog uh, received a sausage, the other one received nothing, the dog that received nothing stopped giving the paw and, yeah, did not want to participate anymore. Um, if both got the same reward, they were willingly yeah, giving the paw all the time. And uh, if one dog got a better reward than the other one, so for example, one got a piece of sausage, the other one got a piece of dry food. The one that got the dry food, which was clearly not as good as the sausage, didn't care, but just continued giving the paw. So um, it was definitely that yeah, the one that got nothing kind of compared the outcome towards the one that got something better, but not as um, as sensitive as, for example, primates like capuchin monkeys, which clearly stop if they got something of a lower value compared to their partner. With dogs, it was just, okay, I get something, so I continue, or I get nothing and I stop. And um, what we found afterwards was um, that they shared less food with their partner in this yeah food tolerance test if they received no reward compared to when both of them received a reward, so it kind of affected also their food-sharing behavior afterwards. And interestingly, we also found that they um, avoided the experimenter. If the experimenter treated them unequally, they were not yeah, as much in close contact to the experimenter afterwards compared to when they both received the same reward. So kind of uh, they have an equity aversion, but only a kind of in, a, in a binary way almost, right? Mm -hmm. like, but not so much if it's a continuous difference. Yes. Um, yeah. So maybe that you know that maybe like the, the the kind of first obvious question there is why don't they like with you know with as you said with other monkeys or with humans obviously um, it's also a, a, a quantitative difference. Like if you just get mm -hmm. more of the same than me, then I'll be very annoyed for the same work. Is it a perceptual problem that maybe dogs don't exactly like you know, yeah. Why why don't they have that? Do they are they so caught up in 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 what they did get that they don't <laughs> think about like what the others getting or how? Yeah, so they definitely knew about these two different qualities. So prior to starting the test, we conducted some food preference tests in order to see whether they can discriminate those two food types. And all of the dogs passed this. So all of the dogs preferred sausage over dry food if we presented both at the same time. So we kind of made sure that they had this preference for the sausage 
So this could not be the problem, or this could not explain why they didn't care. The other thing is that oh, we think that one problem might be that they, um, they're just so happy to take anything that they get from the human that they do not care what they're getting. So you often see this with dogs, that you give them some food and they do not even sniff your hand before taking the food, but they immediately <laughs> eat it, right? Yeah. So it might be some kind of trust in a way that, yeah, I'm getting something and I'm happy with it. And especially in this context, which dogs knew there, they came into this lab that we had there. They were all really excited because something cool was happening and there was food around. And so it might be that this general yeah, motivation was so enhanced that they just were happy to get whatever they could. Yeah. Um, is But like one uh, about the perceptual question I had is like, so you have in your figure one, it's, I'm assuming you, you're sitting there. I don't know. Mm -hmm. It's an experimenter sitting yeah. there. Uh, but you can only see like arm and some legs, <laughs> like yeah. not the face or anything. <laughs> I mean, yeah. So you're, what you're demonstrating there is the giving the poor task. Um, mm -hmm. But I'm, I'm assuming then you take the food and then give it over to the other animal, right? To the animal mm -hmm. that gave the poor. I'm just wondering, yeah. does the other dog that's sitting there, in this case, looking very intently at the food. But mm -hmm. does that? Do how much does that dog realize what you took out of it? Like what you gave the other dog? That's kind of my part yeah. of the question. Like, do they even realize that they got less than the other dog, or what the other dog even got? That's the the issue. We we don't know. So we try to ensure. Uh, we tried to make it really obvious. So we, we lifted the piece of food from the bowl, held it up in between the dogs so that they potentially could see and smell it and only then gave it to the other dog. We also tried to make sure that they or to facilitate this uh, this yeah, movement of the food and that we had this uh, red food bowl, which is also present in the picture. And we had like a barrier somewhere there, like a, a cardboard barrier inside of the bowl. They clearly separated uh, the okay, two yeah. food types. So we always had the, yeah. Yeah, the, the yeah, dry okay, food in okay. the front and the sausage in the back. And uh, yeah, this was all that we could do. Okay. I mean, if you held it up between them, that should be enough. Like, yeah, it seems like it. So I have a, a lot of, like, as I mentioned before we started recording, quite a lot of few, like, technical questions. But I hope that also by doing that, maybe we can um, also explore kind of the more general concepts, maybe. We'll see. Uh, or they're just boring technical questions. I don't know. <laughs> um, but like, for example, in figure one, you, and you know, you have this like wood, this like wooden log kind of barrier. Not, it's not like really a barrier. It's just like 10 centimeters high or something, right? Um, but between the dogs, um, why is that there? So we, um, so I, first of all, I tried to replicate the exact study from my supervisor, from Friederike Ranger there. And she also put the barrier there because she piloted this a bit and tried that or found out that having this barrier there prevented the dogs from going to the other side. So even though they could easily walk over it, it was kind of a physical barrier to them because we didn't want the dogs to yeah just go to the other side. Okay. So they were both on a leash anyway, but still if they wanted to, they could... Yeah, slightly go to the other side. So it was kind of a physical barrier in a way. Okay. Now, a few questions about the dogs that took part. Mm -hmm. um, actually, first is a comment. So you know when you, you do studies about humans, anonymity is one of the things that you have to be very careful about. Mm -hmm. But in your case, you provide for each dog the breed, the age, the sex, and the name. Mm -hmm. And... I will make a bet that there aren't many 7.9-year-old Badino mixes called Socrates in Vienna. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
So, um, I don't, th yeah, I think you're, you're not maintaining anonymity of your participants here, are you? <laughs> no. Um, no, but yeah. I think also just coming from the other way around, I think it's important to, for me, it's important to name those individuals that participated because they're individuals, they're not test subjects or whatever. So I, I intentionally like to give them individual names or use their actual names because they're individuals. They're not like test subjects that I just took out of a random sample. And um, I mean, I took them out of a random sample, but they, I just not... They're not numbers to me or anything. They're, they're individuals with names with a particular history. And, yeah, some interesting yeah. names in there. I wonder who called their dog Gatsby. Um, <laughs> I hope it's a computational neuroscientist who's alluding to the Gatsby Computational Neuroscience Center at UCL. Obviously, yeah. Or not. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, there's yeah, some interesting names. Ultimo. Uh, mm -hmm. Pippi Lotta is a very creative name. <laughs> anyway, um, but uh, I actually had like some more serious questions about <laughs> about this, uh, which is so the first thing is can all so this is slightly you know you said it's a random sample, but in some sense it's also quite limited. It seems to oh, not limited, but I mean limited in the sense of it's not perfectly random um, because at first you're limiting it to dogs that live together, right? Mm -hmm. Understand it correctly? Yeah. Um, and secondly, and I don't know whether this is a coincidence or whether how exactly you recruit the dogs, but you know, most of the dogs are from a few species. So you have 34 dogs in total. Mm -hmm. Oh, wait, I wrote this down. You have 11 border collies, five Australian shepherds, three Bernese mountain dogs, which means roughly two thirds of your entire, um, dogs are from those three, uh, what's the word? Breeds. Mm -hmm. Um, so I guess my first of my question is, can any dog take part in this or w why do we have such a limited or skewed sample of breeds in here? Yeah. So the, the, we recruited those dogs in the, in the clever dog lab in Vienna by contacting owners that were re registered in this database. And um, we have the problem there that it's often dog owners who have very active dogs or who think that their dogs need to do some mental work in order to be yeah, happy. And often you find those working dog breeds like Border Collies, Australian Shepherds, that huskies. are really like, yeah. like yeah, Huskies, not too much. But really these ones that are cooperatively working with humans that are really active and yeah, that like to do those brainy games. And also you have owners or most often you have owners that own these dogs that are also really active and that want to do something with their dog so we we for example we rarely have had some owners there who have like chihuahuas or those like toy breeds yeah. which you just go out for a walk five minutes a day and the rest of the day they're inside of the home and you think like oh well they don't need that much exercise or whatever which obviously most of the time is not the case but it's also this kind of perception of the owner about what their dog should do and so, yeah, it's always a bit biased in the way that you have those more active breeds participating more often. But, um, yeah, this was kind of the, regarding the sample size. We tried to um, yeah, follow up on this question as well in, a, in, a, in another paper which came out last year in which we directly tested whether those cooperative breeds that work with humans like herding dogs or, um, yeah, like herding dogs, 
perform differently in this inequity task compared to the more independent breeds like huskies, for example, which kind of work on their own. They do not rely that much on the human. And so we found that they do not differ in terms of inequity version, but both show it equally. But yeah, it's a good point. So it's always a bit biased in a way that you have particular breeds overrepresented it and others not. And one other thing for for one other inclusion criteria for the study was that they needed to give the paw on command. And not all dogs could do that reliably. So we had like a precondition in which we asked them to give the paw like at least 10 times in a row. And there you already had some dogs which were like, okay, I do it three times and then like, why? I mean, it doesn't make sense. I gave it to you three times already. So why should I continue? So they need to be a bit, yeah, or they need to be food motivated to a certain extent and also, yeah, be yeah happy to, to repeat the same action over and over again. Yeah, I mean, like one, there's two things kind of that um, I thought about with the restrictions to the, you know, the kind of restrictions you have in terms of the breeds that of the dogs that take part. The, the first is kind of a funny analogy that, you know, in, in, psychology we have this problem that you know all the samples are weird you know this west uh, which is an acronym for western what is it educated industrialized rich and democratic i think mm-hmm. um and it seemed to me that the dogs are kind of a bit similar in that way that you know you only have the dogs that reliably that, that are trained almost to give the well they have to be trained to give the port right it's not like a natural mm-hmm. behavior yeah. um then and you know i think border collies are also used quite a lot because they're quite smart right mm-hmm. and yeah, it just seemed to me like you almost have a slightly similar um, sampling problem there. Yeah. Um, but the other thing <laughs> is that, and this I think, I guess it's maybe not a problem for this study per se, but maybe for these kind of studies, is that um, you also said at some point, oh, wait, let's give me a second. You know, you said you also exclude or you don't use dogs that have food aggression. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, as you said, like they have to give the paw several times. So, I mean, you're sampling for very friendly dogs, right? Mm-hmm. Um, by doing that. So if you're studying cooperation, isn't that a slight problem? Again, here you're doing inequity, which is maybe a bit different, but, um, yeah, no, it, obviously it could be. Yes. But, um, especially with these tests that involve close interaction between two dogs, but also with the human, you kind of need to have this safety net in order that you're <laughs> sure like the dog won't bite you because you're not giving it's a piece of food so it's also kind of a, a safety thing to include only pretty well-trained animals that are happy to interact with humans because in the end it should also be like fun for the dogs in a way to participate and um yeah if a dog is yeah has some human aggression or is slightly stressed in all those situations they yeah they wouldn't be behaving normally and it would reduce their welfare and we don't want that so is that why you also chose dogs from the same household? Yes. But also, yeah, one thing for sure that they do not show aggression towards each other. They can be in close proximity if food is involved. But also because, uh, yeah, they know each other. And if, or with, with an equity aversion or also cooperation in general, you have it that closely affiliated partners that know each other very well, that they are more prone to cooperate with one another compared to with a stranger. So you obviously also like to work together with a friend compared to a complete stranger. So this is also kind of, yeah, increasing the chances of detecting this behavior in this regard. Yeah, I was about to say, is doesn't that then increase, the, like if you have dogs living together, unless like the owners have a clear favorite, you'd assume that they also kind of grew up with equity, right? 
Mm-hmm. So, I mean, is the statement then more that not necessarily that dogs naturally have an equity aversion, but more that they can have it? Is that then more that under certain circles, some kinds of dogs have it? Um, because again, I'm just, mm-hmm. you see what I mean? Like wondering, like if you, and of course that makes it very difficult to study, but if you have just all kinds of dogs that don't know each other, different breeds, whatever, whether they'd still show it. I mean, I think yeah. it's not a, a learned behavior, but it's a, like a cognitive ability. So it doesn't really depend on what you, you've yeah, experienced previously. Obviously, if you experience extreme inequality, then you're more sensitive towards it. But I think it's just like a general, or as the, the theoretical principle behind says, that it's a way to stabilize cooperation so that you have those cheaters that always yeah, take out everything, that they are eliminated in the long term or in the evolutionary sense. So I think it's something that is just yeah inherited in a way, like a cognitive ability that balances cooperation, but that's not necessarily learned. So in a way that we, we could show that dogs are somehow sensitive towards this, whether it's really like similar to our sense of fairness, that's where we cannot answer. But yeah, we show they, they are sensitive towards it, so potentially it's it's present in all dogs, independent of what they experienced before. Yeah, I mean... I also don't know. I mean, like, so, so the dogs we had were, I think, by coincidence, both male and pretty large. <laughs> so, you know, it would be you'd, like when you'd walk the dog, again, a very fairly rural area, you know, you'd always come across other dogs when you'd walk them. And yeah, two male dogs is always a bit annoying. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in our case, yeah. it was, the dog was usually quite a bit larger, so he just didn't care about the other dogs barking at him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then you'd have those like four dogs that were all kind of the same size. Yeah, obviously, you, if you have the, you can't do the study with those two in the same room because mm-hmm. they're going to fight for yeah. dominance first. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, that's kind of a problem, I think, with all animal studies that you, you kind of need to yeah, make sure that they're in a comfortable position so that they can show their cognitive abilities. Because if you put like a, a dog there with a stranger dog, and uh, yeah, they first of all would sniff each other, would maybe, I don't know, fight or try to be close or to play or whatever. So they would be distracted from the actual task that you want them to to focus on. Yeah, or I could imagine like if there's if they just had a like fight for dominance, one might be very stressed exactly, <laughs> or something yeah. and barely even pay attention to anything that's yeah. going on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, like I guess whatever species or whatever you test you always have these like very specific problems to the populations. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, like in humans, you sometimes get, you do a study and they say afterwards like, oh yeah, I tried to see whether I could like mess with your data. It's like, okay, thank no. you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. like, I see. I tried to see whether I could do the task without thinking about it. It's like, uh-huh. yeah, we kind of wanted you to think about it. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah, well, we like, don't have these problems. Exactly. You don't have those, <laughs> but then you just have completely different problems. You know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah. Uh, one question I had about the dogs, but which is the same for the parrot study. Why does a human give out the rewards? So in this case, it's always the, you have a human experimenter who gives in all cases food out to the, to the animals, right? Mm-hmm. Why put a human in there? Wouldn't it make more sense to have it like as an, you know, like an automatic machine or something that gives up food if certain conditions are met i mean you could of course have like human press the buttons you know mm-hmm. one-way mirror or whatever but yeah like why doesn't doesn't that just make 
yeah, then it's a study of like dog behavior or parrot behavior in the presence of humans who they know expect certain things and, you know, yeah. Yeah, so just first starting with the dog. So um, I think in, in human psychology, it was established that an equity version only is, is valid if you have like a third party that is distributing things unequally. And this third party should be a human who does this somehow intentionally. So there was a study looking at it, whether humans also show an equity version if they're interacting with a computer. And there they did not show that strong inequity version because it was this computer doing it randomly and without kind of the intention of treating people unequally. Uh, what what's that paper? Do you know? Or, or know like what I searched for? Or, okay. No, I, I think I mentioned it in another paper in which we, we exactly looked at this because we were also wondering with the dogs whether they would also show an equity version if it's just like a yeah still a human giving the food, but from behind a barrier so that they could not see it. And um, with the dogs, for example, in the study um, with a the barrier, um, they, they did not show, or they it wasn't that clear that they show an equity version in this other paradigm, but that we, we couldn't say for sure that it was yeah, the presence of the human or rather this different paradigm that we used that was causing this yeah lack of an equity version. So with the dogs... Asking them to give the paw and have this more natural interaction, we deliberately used the human experimenter there asking for it and giving out the food intentionally in this unequal way. For the parrots, it was uh, yeah actually a bit different there. I think it would have worked with a like an automated machine giving them the food, but there was just yeah more naturally to perform this action like that, so that you have the human pushing in the tokens and giving out the food. Because they were trained from previous studies that there's yeah this human on the other side who they can interact with and who gives them food. But with the parrots, it was a bit more or a bit less interactive in a way that we were just yeah sitting there silently giving out the food as we received a token. And this was it. With the dogs, it was yeah intentionally more interactive, asking for the paw and giving the food. Yeah, especially with the dogs, I think my question is less... Yeah, it was maybe, let's say, more about the parrots per se, because, I mean, first of all, I guess dogs, you know, we domesticated them, so humans are a much larger part of their life anyway. Mm -hmm. um, and because you're giving the poor, you already have this interaction anyway, so that makes perfect sense. But with parrots, I was just wondering, you know, we were talking earlier about, like, the ethology of different animals and their kind of natural behavior. Now you're creating a situation where you have this godlike figure that can give out food to the parrots, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> which I'm assuming doesn't exactly happen in the wild yeah. so does this i mean does this actually say anything about does it say something about their natural behavior if this is a situation they'd never encounter or um i think yes because it's still so we looked at this yeah propensity to help another so it was more about whether the, the this parrot on the other side understands the action-based goal of its partner so do they understand that the partner wants to exchange the token for food so it wasn't necessarily this direct interaction with a human that we were looking for but rather how how they interact between each other for reaching this one goal which kind of involved the human and there we also tried to yeah look at the effect of the human on the other side by, by by implementing a control condition which the human left the room so that they were still able to interact with one, one another but not with the human. But yeah, I think this is often a problem with all these cognitive studies that you have the human part there because obviously we need to manipulate something or to give food or to yeah put an apparatus somewhere. So um, 
I think this is, will only get better or better sorted out in the coming years in which it's, yeah, we have so many more automated options like drones or like computer touch screens or robots, which could do the same actually, and maybe even in a better and standardized way. Yeah, I mean, in a sense, I guess it also depends on what your question is, right? Like you can have, if your question is, are they cognitively capable of this thing? Then it doesn't yeah. matter, right? And in a sense, you could just say, like, well, we were, yeah, we want to find out whether they can even have these kind of beliefs about another parrot score or whatever. Mm -hmm. And the answer is clearly yes. Yes. And even if the circumstances are slightly artificial, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I guess, okay, I guess maybe it says maybe slightly less about inequity aversion in parrots in their kind of everyday lives, but it says something about their cognitive capabilities. Exactly, yes. And this is always the the starting point right we need to find out if they do it in an experimental setting which obviously often is quite artificial and from then on we can look at the more natural setting to see if they do it there as well and how it looks like without these artificial tokens or whatever yeah i mean talking about like a more natural thing have you heard of i watched a documentary or something about in Japan, they have this chimpanzee lab where they have this like very natural environment and where like at the top of one of these trees or whatever, they, they installed like this thing where the chimpanzees can just go and do a task and then they get food for it. So mm -hmm. like they don't interact with humans at all. Mm -hmm. Maybe they teach them like the task in a different way, but yeah. I mean, when I saw that, I thought like that really seems like they've really tried to like, you know, they said, make it as natural as they can. Like the chimpanzees would have to go to a tree to get food or something. In this mm -hmm. case, they go to a tree and they like, in this case, apparently chimpanzees have this amazing visual memory, like so much better than humans. Uh, so they're yeah. just like on this touch screen all the time. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But it also seems like you need a lot of money and funding to have that kind of huge space. And, yeah. Yes, but it, I mean, it's awesome that they can just have yeah, so yeah. much control over their environment and what they want to do when. Yeah. Yeah, I guess with dogs, we could probably get fairly close, right? Because dogs live with humans anyway, so that's not a problem. And Exactly. But still, like, or this also raises some problems, especially with dog research, because they're so sensitive towards us and our behaviors, where we look, how we interact, or how we move our hand, or how we orientate our body or our shoulders towards particular things, or even how our mood is, that we can easily bias the results just by yeah, having an experiment inside of the same test room or whatever. So we need to be very careful in this sense to act really passively. How do you do that when you have when you know exactly that every dog prefers the sausage? Uh, is it was for all dogs the high value reward or whatever? Right. Mm -hmm. So how and you, so you know exactly what's happening, right? You know exactly what the dogs should prefer, how they should act, you have expectations. Mm -hmm. How do you? I mean, can you even be neutral there, or how how did you tackle that problem? So you. Obviously, you try to be as neutral as possible. I, I don't think it will be possible 100% because you always have this unconscious bias maybe in a way. But what we always try is to wear, for example, um, sunglasses so that they cannot see our eyes or where we're looking at because this could already bias their, their choices. And then to have, yeah, like we have like really specific marks on the floor where we put the food. We have a random sequence, for example, to say like, okay, it's never on the same side or whatever. And um, 
yeah, we have this really standardized way of moving around during the test so that we do not, I don't know, scratch the head or whatever. You try to avoid this. Obviously, you cannot always do this, but yeah. you try to standardize your movements and and always use, for example, the same person who's conducting the test so that it's not like a stranger on the one day and then the same other person that they knew on the other day. So you try to be as persistent as possible. And the the well, we could call it a no results that you have, like a the, in the way that you don't have this. What did you call it? Uh, this kind of quantitative. Sorry, what did you call the condition again? Quality. The inequity. reward inequality. Inequity. Right. That was the mm -hmm. one where you didn't yes. have the difference. Yeah. Yeah. In a way, the fact that you didn't have any effects there probably shows that you, as an experiment, didn't have too much of an effect because for humans, we would expect that dogs would behave differently if you yeah. give them that. So maybe in a way, actually, that, that actually maybe yeah points to there not being too much bias in the study. Yeah. And what we also try is mean that they do not know us, us from before. So it's always just in this setting. Maybe it might be or it might look very different if, for example, the owner would have done the test. So they might have reacted much more strongly because they have these expectations of the or they have higher expectations in their owner or experiences with their owner compared to a stranger. Oh, sorry, I actually meant quality inequity, not reward inequity. What, what I just said. Sorry, because mm -hmm. they. Yeah, sorry, that's what I meant. Sorry. Okay. Yeah, the last question is it seemed to be like there were quite a lot of trials for a dog. Do they like continue? I don't know. It's, it's, <laughs> I can't remember exactly how many trials there were, but it, I went through it and thought like, do they just get not bored after a while or mm -hmm. like, do they continue? I mean, is it just food? They'll do it. Did you ask the owners not to feed them before they came or? No, they, they were not food restricted in any way, but so we give them sausage or dry food, which they usually don't get during their normal day. Uh, also, the dry food that we used there was something that they, I think all of the dogs did not get at home. So it wasn't their daily usual dry food. And um, yeah, this also comes back to a question before of this uh, yeah, selection bias in a way that we have all those border collies, which they they were just happy to give their paw 30 times in a row and yeah, did not get bored by it because they got nice sausages. <laughs> Good old border collies. Mm -hmm. um, what would you do without them? You would have had to test so many more dogs that then just stopped at some point. Yeah, <laughs> they're really nice to to work with because they have this motivation to to continue to work to please in a way. Yeah, that's the same as with humans. It's always nice to have motivated participants who actually listen to the read the instructions carefully, mm -hmm. sit there for an hour doing the task. But yeah, um, uh, I wanted to move to the parrot stuff. A very general question how did it feel to get so much media attention so it seems that um so actually so every single st person i've interviewed so far is i read their paper because i came across it in my work mm -hmm. and then you know contact them but in your case actually i was uh, this is the first study where i was uh, once again wasting time on reddit and then on the front page <laughs> it said this thing and i thought this is perfect. Like this is cooperation in animals. I've, I've wanted to have a guest, to, you know, where I can talk about these topics. Um, <laughs> and then I read the study. So yours is actually <laughs> the only one where I saw a kind of public press release and, um, that kind of stuff before I actually read the paper. 
Um, and then I, I earlier I looked whether you had uh, Twitter, which I don't think you have. And I just saw all these, like the first page is just like newspaper articles reporting on the study. Um, how, yeah, it was great. And now you're talking to me. Um, but <laughs> although I don't really consider this journalism. But yeah, so how was, I'm assuming that didn't happen for all of your studies. Um, no, so not at all. No, it was really crazy. And also interesting to see how it works if you publish a paper and yeah, how the journal handles it and yeah, kind of distributes it to the journalists. And it was really a stressful week before it was published because I had to talk to so many journalists. And I have to say, I was always really scared in a way that I said something stupid that they would use then to, to write up their, yeah, their article. Many journalists sent their article to me before they published it, which was really nice, or checked back and said, like, okay, I wrote it like this, this is fine. And, um, yeah, it was really interesting and nice to see how, yeah, how your work kind of gets public attention in a way. I mean, not all, all headlines or whatever were correct, scientifically correct in a way. <laughs> so I often thought, like, oh, my, that's not correct. That's not how I said it yeah. or, yeah, what we showed actually, but it was definitely interesting yeah i mean there's always this like hierarchy of hype and accuracy right you have the actual mm -hmm. paper so first you have what the scientists think then you have the paper then you have the press report from the university and then you have the newspaper articles yeah. and at each step it gets more extreme and less correct kind mm -hmm. of what's, what's in it that's true um, yeah but did but you said before it was published it sounds like you said like the journal instigated this what they like they mm -hmm. contacted like some organizations and said like hey we've got something <laughs> we no, finally I, got something that people <laughs> might be interested in <laughs> no um, i think it, it it works a bit differently i'm not i didn't get it into it like 100 percent, but i think it's something like all those science journalists they're kind of uh, yeah following some 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 newsletter or whatever which says like well, we have these studies coming out and uh, yeah do you want to report about it with with i think the abstract just in it so that they can decide which study might be interesting for them but obviously all the journals pre-select some studies which they think might be interesting yeah i mean some stuff's going to be so technical that yeah i mean this is i mean this is in a way you know also the perfect study for a kind of broad it has a broad appeal right you have firstly a fairly straightforward message that people can understand without you don't need jargon to understand this. And mm -hmm. secondly, you have a cute video of parrots giving each other tokens. <laughs> <laughs> <So>. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It was so, a really, really nice study and nice to communicate with the press. Uh, do you now, for, for all the papers that come out since, do you always hope, like, may, maybe this one's also going to get this much attention and then it doesn't? <laughs> <laughs> no. No, I don't. Okay. No, that was really exceptional because it just worked out so nicely and the results were so clear. I mean, often this is, or most of the time, this is unfortunately not the case. Yeah, I mean, like, it's also just very cool to see the video. I mean, like the one, the video on Twitter by a new scientist that they posted has, I think today it had 13,000 views or something, uh, wow. which is, you know, <laughs> and that's just like the thing that they put on Twitter, not what's on their website or on other things right it's a lot of people mm -hmm. those, those are famous parrots um <laughs> but yeah anyway yeah it's fun yeah we'll see how often that happens that i contact people because of something i found on reddit i don't think it's gonna happen often in part because i want to stop 
wasting my life there. Um, <laughs> and also because, yeah, usually it just goes the, the other route. Uh, but again, do you want to maybe this this paper that we've been talking about for five minutes without actually saying what, <laughs> what you did and what you found? Again, do you want to maybe uh, summarize it in a few minutes so we can have that as a starting point? Yes, sure. So in this study, we tested actually two species of parrots. So it wasn't only the African greys, which were like all over the press, but actually we tested also the blue-headed macaws, which are yeah smaller sized macaws which uh, yeah, are endangered in the wild but we had them there in this research station and they are actually quite nice comparison to look into these helping behaviors or pro-social behavior because they show differences in their social organization and um, also in their social tolerance which is interesting for these results and so um, we tested those two species in an instrumental helping paradigm in which we trained them beforehand to exchange small metal tokens for pieces of walnut. The, the parrots already knew how to do this from previous studies, so we just refreshed their memory and um, then yeah, tested them with their partner in an indoor test compartment in which we had a plexiglass barrier separating the two birds and uh, yeah well we we confronted them with the situation that one bird had these metal tokens but could not exchange them with the experimenter because the exchange hole towards the front was blocked the other bird on the other side had no tokens but had an open exchange hole so could potentially exchange something for food but yeah obviously lacked the tokens for doing so and so we just yeah observed what they would do in this situation, and surprisingly we found that they yeah this actor bird which had all the tokens gave one token after the other towards the receiver bird who then exchanged it with the experimenter for food. Well, obviously this could just be some kind of play behavior or whatever. So we tested them in a social control condition in which there was yeah no experimenter present, no food present, but the tokens were in inside of this compartment anyway. So we wanted to see if they also exchange tokens in this setting in which they cannot exchange it for food. What we found was that they did not exchange tokens in the social control. And likewise, they also did not exchange tokens if there was no partner on the other side who could receive those tokens. In between of those uh, test and control conditions, we implemented some motivational controls in which yeah, one bird had the tokens and could also exchange the tokens for food in order to make sure that they were still motivated to, to do this action. And uh, yeah, as I said, with the African grey parrots, we found that they exchanged lots of tokens in the test condition, but not in the control conditions. The blue-headed macaws, on the contrary, were... yeah were not helping each other, so they, they transferred rarely any tokens and they did not discriminate between the control conditions. So um, in the social control, which there was the partner also on the other side, but no, no food available, they exchanged no tokens at all. But in the non-social control, in which there was no partner on the other side, they still exchanged or they still brought their tokens towards the other compartment which led us believe that they were just trying to bring the token as closely as possible to the human hand so that they could, well, with the hope that maybe they could also get some food in the, in the long term. And um, yeah, following this test, we always let, we, we opened a curtain in between these compartments to see how the birds would interact after the test condition. So we looked at the proximity towards each other, but also whether they would allo feed. And um, yeah, then we repeated those tests again with uh, another partner. So we test them once with a highly affiliated partner and once with a non-affiliated partner, always from the same social group. 
And what we found was that they exchanged more tokens. So now only speaking for the African Grace because the blue-headed macaws did not help another. So the African Grace exchanged more tokens if, with their partners that were highly affiliated and less with their less affiliated partners. But still, they exchanged tokens with all partners. And um, yeah, what we also found was in this interaction afterwards, they spent more time closely towards their partner if they exchanged lots of tokens. And uh, something that I forgot to explain in the description of the test was that we reversed those roles always after one test trial. Um, so that the bird that <clears throat> could exchange tokens before was now the one that could only give tokens to the partner. And so what we found was that if the, the this first actor exchanged lots of to or transferred lots of tokens towards the receiver bird, that then the receiver bird, once the roles were reversed, also gave back lots of tokens. So it was kind of a form of reciprocity, which, yeah, unfortunately, with this data, we cannot say for sure if this is really reciprocity or if they're just kind of in a happy mood once they received something like that. But yeah, still these results show that on the one hand, parrots, so a non-mammalian species, is able to, to help another. And also that potentially some form of social tolerance or social organization explains species differences. While the African greys, they live in really huge flocks of 1,000 individuals, and they show this fission-fusion dynamics, which means that they roost together during the night in a tree, and during the day they yeah, separate again in small groups for foraging, but then they always come back together during the night. So it might be for these African greys, which live in these huge flocks, it might be a way to build up something like a good reputation. So they, they help another, so maybe it's a way of showing or signaling that they're a good cooperative partner. So it might be important for them to build up this reputation. And the um, blue-headed macaws, on the contrary, so while they're very endangered in the wild, there are still some studies on their social organization, and they've been found in much smaller flocks, so only up to 10 individuals, and they do not mix with other flocks or anything. So they're always in this constant composition. So it might be that for them it's less important to build up a good reputation or anything because they're always together with the same set of individuals. And, yeah, well, the social life is maybe more structured by dominance or whatever. And um, another thing that we found between the two species was that the African race were much more tolerant in the food context compared to the blue-headed macaws. So it might be that the African race, they're just much more prone to share food compared to the blue-headed macaws. What does food macaws. tolerant mean? So in this regard, we did like a, we called it food tolerance study in which we presented a small bowl of food. So it was a bowl filled with seeds to two birds and then just watched how they would feed from this bowl. So do they both put their head and then like yeah, happily share with each other or is one monopolizing the bowl and yeah, chasing away the other one? This is how we assess their, their food tolerance. But it's not a tolerance towards the food, it's more tolerance yes. towards sharing food with another or the yes. other bird. Yeah. yeah. It's a very good summary. I think you, you seem to have practiced it <laughs> through all the media stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, let's see, where shall we start? Maybe maybe we can again start with a bit more of the more technical stuff um, and then get to the more broader things. So in the video that I saw and that you know I'll put in the description, so you always put your hand immediately underneath the hole uh, where the parrot could exchange tokens for food, right? Mm -hmm. Doesn't that suggest to the other parrot that 
they, you know, it's expected. I mean, if they already know that they can exchange tokens for food, aren't you kind of suggesting that that they should give over the thing, get over the token to the others because they want them to give some tokens? Yeah, it, it could be. Yes, but um, so from the the training, they they knew that there was this barrier in between, so that they could not just walk to the hand. Still, it could somehow, yeah, this movement of holding the hand, they could, yeah, elicit this, uh, yeah, this training response like, of grabbing uh, the token. What I thought, like, if if you don't have your hand there, the parrot can still drop it, and then you can still exchange it. Right? Whereas the the, I mean, I, I don't know how good parrots are at reading gestures. But like, mm -hmm. especially like if, if, as a human, like seeing the hand upwards, you know, that's mm -hmm. very much a give me something gesture. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that's just what I was thinking when I saw that. Yeah. So on the one hand, it was, the, so this exchange behavior was trained like this with holding the hand open with the birds for, yeah, for other studies as well. So they were quite familiar already with this gesture in a way. And um so that's why we, we use the same way of requesting the tokens. But in a way that or we, we controlled for um, yeah for this effect that this hand might facilitate the transfers with this non-social control condition in which we still held the hand in the hole, um, in front of the hole of the empty compartment. So there was no other bird there to take the token, but still the birds did not drop the token in the empty compartment, at least not the African greys. But um, yeah. They, they did not try to bring the token close to the hand in this condition. And we did it the same in all conditions, except for the social control in which we left the test room. I have a more comment than a question. One thing that so I was just thinking through kind of what the parrots are doing. So they would, you know, give the tokens to one condition, not the others and that kind of stuff. And it really does seem like they, they have to go through quite a lot of lot cognitively right they have to realize like oh the other one's the token and can or can't give it and all these kind of things yeah i was just, it's just i think it's always funny like when you have these tasks that are so natural to humans to realize like it's quite a lot that actually goes into being able to make that kind of well to, to act in that kind of way mm -hmm. yeah i mean i guess like the parrots and that kind of stuff are supposed to be very intelligent birds right um mm -hmm. but yeah i don't know yeah, but that's that that comes again and again to the thing that we talked about in the beginning that we humans always think of this is how the task should, should look like and how the animals are yeah, are supposed to interact with all the items within this test room, let's say. But then again in the end it's like they have yeah, a completely different view of how it looks like or yeah, that they try to get to the other side as well. So we needed to fix some things in the beginning so to prevent the birds from yeah, I don't know, trying to go through the this exchange hole or yeah rip open the the curtain so there's always a lot of piloting going in before you can actually test them and yeah especially parrots are very destructive so you have to make everything <laughs> yeah. parrot proof actually here's a question you did do this i'm assuming but speculating um do you think so let's say you had a parrot proof method of only giving one parrot the tokens and the other couldn't get them but there's no barrier in between them. Do you think the parrot would have given the other some tokens or would they have just walked past them and uh, given the tokens over themselves? Do you know what I mean? Like in the, in the test condition, like you have, they have, there's, they have to basically like walk past the other parrot with a token in their mouth, in their beak, not mouth, mm -hmm. um, and give it to the whole. Do you think they would have like shared some tokens there or was it just because they couldn't do anything with them themselves? That's a good question. So... <laughs> 
So right now we, we are conducting a follow-up study to see if they not only share tokens, but also food directly with one another, because the tokens, I mean, they're just like, a, yeah, an intermediate step towards the food. So why should, shouldn't they share food with each other? And yeah, this is something we are currently looking into, whether they, yeah, for example, if you give them a bowl of food, do they just eat it up all on their own or do they give something to their hungry partner as well? But this is not yet analyzed but we're definitely trying to figure out what's what's happening there yeah i mean for me because it's also a question slightly about the boundary conditions here because in a way showing voluntary cooperation when you this thing has no value to you because you can't do anything with it it's it's a different kind of thing right than if you could actually do something with it yourself like if mm -hmm. i have something that has no meaning for, to me sure you take it like you know i don't care yeah um And that's a very different statement than something that I care about, right? Yeah, that's true. But I guess, sorry, is this again then the kind of thing also to show cognitively whether they can do this kind of thing? Is is it again? Yeah. So again, this was, or this was, yeah, the first study looking at birds, whether they would, yeah, provide this help to another partner in this instrumental paradigm. There was one study using the exact same same methods, in ravens and they did not help another so it's always good in this comparative setting to use the same methods to test another species to see how they perform comparatively but um yeah i mean it's it's difficult to design a task in which something of value you have something of value to yourself but then again you have somebody else close by who could also use the same things so the primate studies that looked into or that used the very similar paradigm, they used uh, three different sets of tokens. So one were self-serving tokens, which they could exchange with an experimenter and they got food themselves. Then they had tokens that were only of value to their partner, so they could not do anything with them, but give it only to the partner. And then they also had some no-value tokens, which, yeah, had no value. And um, obviously, if you do it like that, it gives you some more information about what's going on. So do they first exchange off their self-value tokens or do they first exchange off their partner value tokens? But it also adds like an additional cognitive component because they need to discriminate those tokens. They need to reach a certain learning criterion for performing the task. And so what we try always is to keep the, the paradigms as simple as possible, but again, allowing to draw some conclusion. And that's why we use this yeah rather simple setup of just one set of tokens instead of three different sets of tokens and also yeah blocking just the exchange hole and not having them walk past someone who also has tokens for example or who also could exchange them but this is definitely something for follow-up studies to look into what's going on there okay uh so one had you, you explained it briefly earlier but if you can it would be great if you could elaborate a bit on that And this is this fission fusion dynamics um, that the African greys show, right? Uh, mm -hmm. yeah. And yeah, can you just um, explain in a bit more detail what that is? Because I had never heard that before and it seems kind of important for understanding the natural etiology of the yeah. animals. So fission fusion dynamics are social dynamics that you see across a range of different species, which basically just describe the way that they are organized. So that you have different subgroups within a bigger group that always yeah 
merge together during certain times of the day or during certain weeks or whatever, and then split up again. And these kind of societies, which are in a way open and fluid, but still yeah, recognize each other potentially, are thought to, um, yeah, to produce individuals that are more cognitively advanced compared to societies which are just really stable and with a small number of individuals because if you have these fission fusion dynamics you kind of need to remember whom you've interacted with before how this interaction turned out or how yeah which individuals are good cooperators for example which ones are bad cooperators and you do not see them like on a daily basis or on an hourly basis or whatever but they disappear and then come back together. So it, it's thought to require more cognitive abilities compared to these really stable societies. Sorry, if I'm understanding this correctly, humans live in fission fusion dynamics? Or yes, I, I think with humans it's always difficult to say. But I think like but it sounds like like it sounds like you have like your let's say you live with your family and then you go to school and there's a, yes. there's a different set of people and then maybe you go somewhere else for football team or whatever like you you have like these different contexts in which is different people and yeah is that an example of one of this fission fusion dynamic or is it different no i think it's the same that you always that you have some people that you do not meet regularly but then they come back into your life at some point but i i don't i'm not sure if this was the yeah the natural condition for humans because if you think of all those hunter gatherers they live in rather more like stable societies there are not some strangers coming in from time to time but it's rather always the the same group of people but i yeah. think like the modern societies definitely are okay so a city so a city is but um evolutionary maybe not so much Could be. okay i mean you said like up to a thousand uh, mm -hmm. per flock right isn't dunbar's number for humans 150 I don't know like how close human societies were to that number. But if you already have like 130, 40 people, I guess mm -hmm. you already have like these slightly. But yes, yeah, do everyone knows each other very well? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I should ask yeah. an anthropologist. Exactly. <laughs> I do not know. <laughs> yeah. But so, so just so I understand the species a bit better and this dynamic. So you... So sh should we imagine, should I imagine this like, you have like a few birds that sleep in the same place and then, yeah, sorry, how do they first, do they, they nest, I'm assuming, um, mm -hmm. or and they, how many? They, they roost. So roosting is just that the, the birds get together during the night because it's safer to stay together during the yeah, night in which predators are more active. And yeah, this getting together for sleeping is called roosting in birds. And they, so how many birds are, is, is the entire flock together or is it in just a few in groups or how does? No, no, the, the roosting is always like all individuals together. And for African greys, it was like the biggest, yeah, flock recorded getting together during the night was like 1000 individuals. I see. And then a few of those. Is it always the same kind of team that goes out for foraging during the day? Like, would you have like your, your teammates, your, your few people with whom you go? Or is it always like a random? Yeah, that's the from question. The group, I think we do not know yet. Okay. But you, I think you would expect that you always get out, at least with your mate and maybe some, yeah, relatives or friends in a way. But I think for African Grace, it has not been reported yet how this group composition changes. 
Okay. Yeah, I was just curious because for, for trust, this obviously has some implications, right? Like if it were that, let's say, I don't know, you have this flock of 500 birds and they always sleep in this one tree, let's say. Mm-hmm. And then at random, birds would go together. Obviously, for that, you trust doesn't work. Or, mm-hmm. Well, it's difficult to remember that many people, right? Or, mm-hmm. I guess birds, not people. Um, <laughs> but it's also difficult to remember that many people. Yeah. Um but I guess you could still have like indirect trust where at least, yeah, but still, yeah. yeah. Okay. I guess if you, if, yeah, if we don't know, I don't know, think don't that know. They, they know like all 1000 individuals within their flock, but at least they, they may be able to discriminate between, okay, this is one as a familiar individual that I've seen before. And this is an unfamiliar one coming out from another or coming, yeah, to join us from another flock. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just find it so funny like because obviously to us they all look the same mm-hmm. <laughs> at least from someone who hasn't actually interacted with them so I'm just imagine like 500 gray parrots and you get like uh which one yeah, yeah. to them <laughs> obviously could, yeah. it's different yeah um, <laughs> and then one has a wider beak or grayer yeah but it's really those coat. those uh yeah slight individual differences that you observe if you interact with them for a longer time so they're more, yeah. a little bit more lighter on the head or more dark or yeah have a scratch on the beak okay so you've worked on you know dogs well the stuff we discussed today was with dogs and parrots um mm-hmm. why did you work on those two species was it kind of there were positions available that worked with those animals did you uh, specifically i don't know like yeah why, why dogs and parrots and now farm animals yeah so with, with the dogs it was in particular that i wanted to to do something with dogs because yeah i had a dog at that time as well and it was really yeah interesting easily available as well to to work with you don't need to go into the yeah forest in africa to study them but they're already around you and for me it was always that i felt like i could yeah read their behavior more easily because i was yeah so familiar with them that's why i started out working with dogs and yeah, during my PhD, I realized the dogs are really interesting, but there's so much research in dogs and so little in other species that, uh, yeah, for me, it was kind of like, no, I want to, to move on. Dogs are awesome. And I also got the chance to work with wolves as well in, in Austria. So there was yeah really great experience and a great start. But then after the PhD, I wanted to yeah use this knowledge and work with another species. And then, uh, yeah, the, the first postdoc kind of came up by chance so i didn't decide before to to do something with parrots but parrots are awesome i mean they're so intelligent they often use them as as models for a convergent evolution because they have these really big brains they have this yeah high neuron density and yeah you know of the research from from i don't know if you know her irene pepperberg who just who did this first pioneer research with african grace showing how they yeah can learn about concepts how they can talk it's really impressive and so i heard about her before and then yeah when i got the chance to work with african grace it was yeah really amazing to finally see how how intelligent they are and that i can use yeah, my knowledge from the phd and the yeah research topics in general and apply them to another species and yeah following that or yeah following the work with the parents i kind of realized okay they're really interesting but there's not really like an applied perspective in this way so the research is super interesting and i'm really into it but i want to kind of also change something or get a result out of it to have like an applied context and yeah it was always so there's more than just publishing papers to life yes, <laughs> yes. 
Oh, definitely. Okay. Oh God. <laughs> and yeah, which which species are like treated the worst by humans? It's farm animals, and often you hear this comparison between dogs and pigs that they are yeah, the pigs are even more intelligent than dogs, and yeah, if you compare the way we treat them, it's really crazy. And yeah, since there's not been so much done on farm animal cognition, this is something that I felt really yeah close to it, my way to improve the world or to leave a little bit of my my work for future generations yeah and so what did you you were also in zurich right um yes what did you do there there i worked with roe deer so again switching so species completely roe deer the small deer that you find all over europe oh it's a type of deer okay sorry yes. i thought i thought roe deer i thought what's a roe deer Uh, like as if that was like one word okay okay it's a type of deer okay yeah Yeah. and uh, yeah this was also kind of by chance coming up the opportunity and uh, this was a bit unrelated to my previous research but um, again I was able to acquire some new skills like looking at the social dynamics within a group of captive rodeo and seeing how they adapt to captivity in general which was really interesting and going a bit more to in the area of behavioral biology and pure observational work instead of this experimental work with parrots is that published already or no okay okay so i can't remember reading anything about deer um, (laughs) on your google scholar so one um you know i guess we're nearing the end here at some point soon but um one kind of overall question i always have when i read studies about animals studies about let's say evolutionary simulations of cooperation mm-hmm. um, is does that actually tell us anything and if so what about human cooperation um, so is there anything that you learned about human cooperation from studying dogs parrots deer animal farms <laughs> uh, <laughs> farm animals not animal farm <laughs> animal farm you can learn stuff about humans there too but that's a different mm-hmm. thing um, but yeah did you learn anything yeah, is there anything that you can kind of draw from 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 your research to humans, or is it just? I don't mean just in a negative way, but it's 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 limited to knowledge about species. Um. Yeah. So, I think definitely about just scientifically speaking, uh, that there there's this evolutionary origin, not just in humans so that we're able to cooperate with one another, but also in other primates but not even primates but also other mammals and birds are able to work together to achieve a a common goal and yeah apart from this evolutionary background that we know that probably a common ancestor this how many million years ago already was able to do this um i think for me personally it was also always really interesting to see that we humans are not as unique as we always think that we are so especially with this helping behavior in parrots it was always said like yeah well we humans are so exceptional because we cooperate and we we do something for strangers without expecting anything in return but actually it's not that we humans are so special we just did not look properly with the animals all around us so this is something that i'm yeah taking out as a message that if we look properly obviously we won't find talking parrots or whatever which are super similar to us humans but these really basic concepts of social life are also present in other species yeah and maybe in many contexts we just can't we don't understand the species well enough to really understand what they're doing or exactly yeah 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 
this for sure is also like that but we can't even yeah see those really subtle signals that i don't know ants are exchanging between each other following chem yeah chemical signals or whatever so we, we can't even see that so say the fun thing is that you said you know seeing right because that's the primary perception modality that humans use but of course for many animals that they don't care too much about vision mm-hmm. um so yeah it's really hard to escape that isn't it too? yeah i'm assuming for you it's maybe a bit easier because you've actually had to create experiments for animals but mm-hmm. i mean like that's the whole i haven't read it but you know this famous paper like what's it like to be a bat mm-hmm. you know i don't as far as i can tell that's something you can't really escape right i mean yes yeah, we're just just humans, so we see the world how we see it, and that's okay. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But if as you... long as we are like tolerant of acknowledging that other species see it completely different.